Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to bring us all here together, this youth conference, um, where thousands of young people are, are seriously interested in learning about you and uh, what you have planned for our lives. Um, please be with us today, especially in this uh, topic that's becoming more uh, problematic for your church these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, early man. Um, I must not stumble over all these chords. Early man is a fascinating topic because we're human and we want to know where we came from. And the popular concept is that we came from apes, of course. There's all these uh, hominids that can gradually, uh, stepwise, evolve higher and higher, more humanoid features until finally we showed up as homo sapiens. That's the standard story, and so let's, I just like to look at the story and see how scientific, is it really scientific, or is it more what I call just those stories, so that where people make up legends and they uh, pass them on, but science to me is more concrete, and uh, let's just see how concrete these stories are. Um, a few quotes to start out with. How to interpret bones. Ernest uh, Houghton, he's a Harvard professor of anthropology, and he writes, you can with equal facility model on Neanderthal or Neanderthoid skull the features of a chimpanzee or the lineaments of a philosopher. These alleged restorations of ancient types of man have very little, if any, scientific value and are likely only to mislead the public. So put not your trust in reconstructions. So if you don't believe the reconstruction, uh, upon what, and he's an evolutionist, he believes in uh, apes going to man. So then on what basis do you believe this? Here's um, William Howells, Harvard professor also of anthropology. A great legend has grown up to plague both paleo, um, paleontologists and anthropologists that a man can take a tooth or a small and broken piece of bone, gaze at it, pass his hand over his forehead, like Johnny Carson, you know, once or twice, and then take a sheet of paper and draw a picture of what the whole animal looked like as it tramped in the tertiary terrain. If this were quite true, the anthropologists would make FBI look like a troop of Boy Scouts. I mean, they're very talented people. So what's the problem? Why is anthropology so problematic uh, when it comes to interpreting the meaning of bones? Are many mainstream beliefs based on real science or blind faith in fairy tale stories that have grown, out, grown into legends? So here's a bit of history of early man. Started out basically with the famous uh, Piltdown Man find. Uh, it, uh, this Piltdown Man or Dawn Man was discovered by Charles Dawson in 1912, and this is Dawson over here. Um, it was an ape-like mandible, so this part of the skull combined with the, uh, the, the top piece, uh, which was human-like. And um, then it, it was revealed as a hoax in 1953 uh, that it was deliberately produced as a hoax because everybody thought that this is what the ape man would look like or should like, like because obviously if you combine an ape jaw with a human-like skull, that's kind of a missing link. But what's interesting about this uh, is that the hoax was not discovered for 40 years. This was the ape man in science, mainstream science, for 40 years. Everybody pointed to this. And no one discovered that it was a hoax because no one looked or investigated scientifically very carefully. Uh, because if it already matches what you believe to be true, why investigate it? Nebraska man is the next uh, uh, man or missing link that came along. 
it, it's all based on one tooth. See, here's Nebraska man. Nice drawing and a beautiful wife there. This, this is all that they found. And then from that tooth, they waved it over their forehead. And then they drew Nebraska man based on this. And this is the missing link. Uh, and Nebraska man, uh, this tooth was attempted to be used as evidence in the Scopes monkey trial. Uh, but it wasn't allowed by the, by the judge. Uh, thank goodness, uh, because if, later on it was quite, pretty embarrassing. So here's just a blow up of it. You can see, isn't that incredible what they, those anthropologists can do with a tooth? Uh, so here's Henry Fairfield Osborne. He's he's mainstream scientist back in the early 1900s. And his discussion about this tooth uh, around the time of the Scopes monkey trial, Osborne chided Nebraska native William Jennings Bryan in the press, who was the prosecutor in the case, he said, the earth spoke to Brian from his own state of Nebraska. The Hespero Hesperopithecus tooth is like the still small voice. Its sound is by no means easy to hear. This little tooth speaks volumes of truth and that it affords evidence of man's descent from the ape. So he also went on to say uh, that such drawings or reconstructions would doubtless be only a figment of the imagination of no scientific value and undoubtedly inaccurate. Okay, so he thinks this drawing is probably not quite true to form, but he still thinks it's a missing link, right, between apes and man. But then they went back a little bit later. They dug around where they found the tooth, and they found the rest of the skeleton, and it was a pig. So he, he was just a little bit off. <laughs> In his, uh, and, you know, if that had become known ahead of time for the Scopes Monkey Trial, I just wonder if that would have made any difference in the outcome of the historical outcome of the trial. Let's move on to Java Man. Java Man is a combination between this skullcap and this femur. This femur is a modern human uh, femur in, in structure, and this skullcap is from a uh, gibbon, which is a type of monkey. So they were found uh, in the same level, uh, layer of sediment, about 12 meters apart in the sediment. And because they were so close together, they must have belonged to the same animal. So they put them together and they built Java Man. And here you go, there's Java Man. Missing link, because you got an ape skull cap combined with a human femur, so it must be a missing link. So eventually they showed that this was a, they realized that this was a false association and they removed Java Man from the uh, Museum of Natural History in the 1980s. It took them a long time to figure out that this was a false association, that they weren't really the same creature. So now let's, let's look at creatures that aren't actually combinations of other creatures or outright hoaxes. Here, lots of uh, hominids have been found that seem to show sort of an evolutionary sequence in morphology. You can start out with, uh, from left to right, the bush baby. There's the jaw and here's the skull. And it kind of, kind of, you know, if, if you kind of use your imagination, you can kind of have an evolutionary sequence in morphology that gradually gets up into the modern human form. And here, and this is the gibbon uh, skeletons. It kind of, you know, the gibbons hold their hands above their heads and get bouncing along. Have you ever seen on nature? Uh, that's the gibbon. And then you got the orangutan and the chimp and the gorilla and then humans. And you notice they're all kind of hunched over a little bit. So obviously if you can find a, a chimp or something that walks upright and holds its head upright, then that would be a missing link, clearly. So, or if his jaw, you know, notice the jaws here, see they're kind of U-shaped here. And then humans is more of a parabolic shape. 
So if you can find jaws that are more parabolic in shape, then that's obviously a missing link. Yeah, the brain. We'll get to the brain. So Ramapithecus was found in 1932 by a famous anthropologist, Louis Leakey. Um, this is what he found right here. See, he found the piece of the, of the jaw. And he, uh, see it was broken, fragmented. So he put the fragments back together kind of in that parabolic U shape, right? So that made it a missing link. Uh, and then later, this is what uh, the full jaw was found. The mandible was discovered in 1977. Uh, and it was more of the U shape. So obviously their previous reconstruction was mistaken. And it wasn't really a missing link at all. So Zillman and Lowestein attempted to explain the reason for the earlier thinking of most of the world's most prominent paleoanthropologists. They write about the psychology of uh, how, how this find was interpreted previously. They, they say, Ramapithecus walking upright has been reconstructed from only jaws and teeth. In 1961, an ancestral human was badly wanted. So it's more of a matter of desire or need than real science. The princess ape, or that's another name for the Ramapithecus, latched onto the position by his teeth and has been hanging on ever since. His legitimacy sanctified in millions of textbooks and lifetime volumes of human evolution. So there's kind of an evolution here already with Ramapithecus, just as bones. This is how he started out from 1932 to 1977. This is what it looked like. Then they found in 1977 the, another piece of the jaw. And so then this is the chimpanzee for comparison versus the human. So which does it match the most? All right, on to uh, Australopithecus. And I love this foresight joke. You know, somebody gets cave in the spelling bee and you get stuck with Australopithecus. <laughs> So this is Australopithecus, uh, is another missing link. Uh, here's the uh, man, Australopithecus, and he looks like he's about ready to kill somebody who's going to mess with his wife over here. So um, this is a comparison. Now here's the Australopithecus skull compared to the chimp compared to the human. Which, on the profile view, which does it look more like? Chimp, okay, so that's not really argued. Here's the jaw again. So Australopithecus on the, uh, the left, chimp on the right, which does it look similar? Except the teeth are bigger, right? Bigger, it's just bigger, but otherwise the shape is more U-shaped, right? So here's a comparison. You've got your uh, chimp on the left, uh, Australopithecus in the middle, and the inhuman on the right. So here's the chimp here, and see the same general shape. Uh, the teeth are same shape, and there's these uh, canine-looking teeth. Does it have the U-shape? Not really. It doesn't. That part doesn't seem to match. So why is this thing a missing link? Well, it really wasn't a missing link until uh, Donald Johansson in 1974 discovered a, a, a fairly complete skeleton that he named Lucy after the Beatles song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, or LSD. So it makes you wonder what he was taking at the time. But anyway, um, he, he, he noticed that the angle of the knee joint matched that of humans. So it's not really based on the skull at all. It's based on the knee joint, the missing link nature of this thing. It matched the angle of humans. Um, it also, he noticed that uh, the had curved toe bones, a high arm to leg length ratio, and many other features identical to tree climbing apes. 
So was Lucy a tree-climbing ape or did she walk upright? That's the whole question. Stern and Sussman uh, detailed many features consistent with tree-climbing apes for Australopithecus, yet they also believed that Australopithecus spent much time walking around on two legs. Why did they believe this? They believed this because the most significant feature for bipedalism, according to them, includes shortened iliac blades, which is the hip bones, a lumbar curve, you know, the lower back, you have a lumbar curve so you can stand upright, knees approaching midline, so that angled knee joint, distal articular surfaces of the tibia nearly perpendicular to the shaft, so the legs were pretty straight, robust metatarsals, this bone here in your hand, so there are big uh, joints in the hand, knuckle bones, uh, with expanded head, convergent halix, or big toe. In other words, the toe wasn't sticking out to the side, it was more straight line. And proximal foot phalanges with dorsal-oriented proximal articular surfaces. So the toes were kind of more straight instead of curved. So different ways of interpreting the same things, basically. The perpendicular tibia, lumbar curve, and angled knee joints that are approaching midline are seen in modern tree-climbing chimps. So how is that a difference? The robust first metal tarsal with an expanded head is also consistent with Stern and Seussman's own comment that, that the hand bones and reasonably the foot bones as well have large heads and bases relative to parallel sided to their parallel sides and somewhat curved shafts and an overall pattern shared by chimpanzees. In other words, they use these things so that they can grasp and swing around on branches. If you have a big uh, knuckle bone, you can grasp things better and swing around without falling off. I know that because I used to try to do that and I fell out of my share of trees as a kid. So then here's another interesting find. 3.6 million year old footprint uh, dated by the ash in volcanic ash. And you can see the, this footprint here and then the little child next to it. And you can see all kinds of uh, deer imprints and rhinoceros and all other things as well. Happened to be uh, actually a little older than Lucy was supposed to be. And uh, so how can Lucy be the missing link if these are modern human footprints? They're, they have a nice ball art. They're no different than your or my footprints that we would make on the beach. And here's a, a blow up of them. And it turns out that as the adult was walking along, uh, one of the ch children was walking in the footprints of, of the adult. Uh, for some reason or another, maybe the ash was hot. And so here's comments about these footprints from National Geographic, which is a very evolutionary journal. As I kneel beside the large print and lightly touch its sole, I'm filled with quiet awe. It looks perfectly modern. I thought that three and a half million years ago, their prints might be somewhat different from ours, says Latinimer, but they're not. The bipedal adaptation of those hominids was full blown. So here we got some sort of chimp sort of missing link, and yet we have perfectly modern human footprints, older than, than uh, Lucy. So Johansson, he, of course, he insisted strongly that these footprints had to have been made by Lucy, so therefore Lucy's feet had to have evolved more than obviously the skull and, and the rest of the body. The footprints would have to be from Australopithecus. They substantiate our ideas that bipedalism occurred very early and our contention that the brain was too small to master tools. So we got a tiny little brain uh, creature that's walking full eye upright and has modern human feet but the brain hasn't developed yet to modern humanness. The problem is that the foot bones and lower leg bones of Australopithecus have been, were found later in the, in the same area, and they were ape-like, not human-like. So Johansson was messed up again. There, there he got more problems. This, uh, another skull was found called 
Kenmer in 1470 after the Kenya Museum of, in East Rudolph. Kenmer 1470 was found in 1972, uh, along with a modern human femur, again, that whole association thing. It looks more human-like than, than Lucy's skull because it's got this dome-shaped pattern and kind of a more human-like face attached to it, modern human-like face. And what was weird about this is before they found this skull, they had already dated the ash uh, on top of it, uh, above it, and they dated it at uh, 220 million years, three separate times by independent laboratories. And they all agreed with each other. Then they found the skull, and after they found the skull, they said, wait a minute, we can't have a hominoid that's 220 million years old. That's ridiculous. So let's go back and redate this uh, ash. So they worked at it and worked at it, and they found little crystals in it, and they dated those, and they finally found some that dated downwards of uh, 2.61 million years. Uh, so that's much more in line with what it's supposed to be, and so that, that was the accepted age. So it was, was still problematic because Lucy was originally dated at 2.9 million years, which is pretty close to 2.61 million years. So how can you have very different looking creatures essentially living at the same time in geologic time? And so uh, Johansson wanted Kinmer 1470 redated, but he didn't use radiometric dating. He used uh, a sequence, an evolutionary sequence of fossil pig teeth. Again, we got the pig teeth coming into the picture. And so based on the evolutionary sequence of fossil pig teeth, um, he dated uh, Lucy, or actually Kenmer to less than two million years and Lucy to more than three million years, so that now you have a more orderly evolutionary progression. Then Richard Leakey comes along in 1973, a year later, and in an interview with National Geographic, he's much more honest than Johansson. He writes, either we toss out the 1470 skull or we toss out all of our theories of early man. It simply fits no previous models of human beginnings. 1470 leaves in ruin the notion that all early fossils can be arranged in an orderly sequence of evolutionary changes. He's like, this is all bogus. All these things, this evolved into that, evolved into that. This is not supported by the fossils, even according to geologic time. And this, this is also interesting, this fossil discovered by Mary Leakey, all these Leakeys, they're very famous. She named it Zinge uh, for sort, for, the whole name is Zingenthropus Boise, so she just called it Zinge. She found this, this skull in association with a bunch of butchered animals, so of course she assumed that this creature was the one that did the butchering instead of the one being eaten by other humans doing the butchering. And so she gave it the name Handyman because there were tools there and these butchered animals. So she thought it had a bigger brain capacity and, and could manipulate tools. Uh, and it's interesting that both of these things, uh, Kenmer 1470 and Zinge, are given the genus and species name Homo habilis. Now, do they look anything alike? They look very different to me. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but they look very different to me. And later on, uh, in the next lecture on the fossil record, remember this comparison, the identical genus and species name, and yet when you look at uh, other creatures like coelacanths, we have coelacanths that are living today and very, very similar coelacanths that are found in the fossil record, and they're given different genus and species names. So this whole concept of genus and species, a species especially, is very subjective. You can give it whatever you want. This is also interesting. Uh, a modern human femur and portions of leg bone, very similar to how we look now, were found a few, few kilometers away from Kenmer 1470. 
in the same layer uh, to 1470. Uh, more recent evidence such as labyrinthine, uh, the labyrinthine uh, analysis by uh, Dr. Spohr, he went and got these skulls from all these missing link hominids and he analyzed the inner ears. And the inner ear, these loops and twists here, they tell you how your head is oriented in three-dimensional space, whether or not you tend to hold your head upright or whether or not you tend to hold your head forward, uh, like in the, in the ape posture. And he found that the uh, semicircular canals of Homo erectus, uh, Australopithecus and many other hominids, uh, indicate that Homo habilis relied less on bipedal behavior than Australopithecus. And here Homo habilis, the handyman with the bigger brain, more, supposed to be more human-like, He's more hunched over all the time, more in the A posture, than the precursor, supposed precursor, Australopithecus. And so that completely doesn't jive anymore. Leaky again, 1990 PBS documentary. If pressed about man's ancestry, I would have to unequivocally say that all we have here is a huge question mark. To date, there has been nothing found to truthfully purport as a transitional species to man, including Lucy, since 1470 was as old and probably older. If further pressed, I would have to state that there is more evidence to suggest an abrupt arrival of man rather than a gradual process of evolving. And that's, he's the unchallenged uh, expert in this field, and he doesn't, he says we don't know what we're talking about, essentially. So, science, uh, 1986. By 1986, they write, the Australopithecines are rapidly shrinking back to the status of a peculiarly specialized ape. In other words, there's, they're not a missing link, uh, even according to mainstream science, published in the journal American Science. What about Neanderthals? Neanderthals were the next big missing link. Here's an early 1900s uh, picture of a Neanderthal. Looks like a missing link, doesn't it? You know, kind of more ape-like and like it's about, doesn't look like the brightest kid on the block. You know, but then by 1991 or 1981, Neanderthals, the, the whole perception of Neanderthals had evolved. Doesn't that kind of look like Jean-Luc Picard or something on Star Trek? I mean, he looks m much more intelligent. Uh, anyway, they are thought to have died out about 20,000 years ago. They were first found in 1856 in Neander Valley. That's where they get their name by John uh, Falrote, a school teacher. Uh, dozens have since been found. Uh, in 1908, Professor Boulle of the Institute of Human Paleontology in Paris declared Neanderthal an ape man because of low brow ridges. See those little brow ridges? Um, and the stooped posture of some of the specimens. In other words, they were kind of stooped over and they had these brow ridges, so there must be a, a missing link. Here's a comparison, though, how perceptions change over time. Um, what's w interesting, though, about Neanderthals is that they had bigger brains than we do. They, they had bigger brains. On average, their brains were 200 cc's bigger, which is quite much, quite a bit larger than ours. Uh, they lived a long time. They uh, maybe, to me, I think Neanderthals were probably lived. Maybe Abraham was a Neanderthal, or along the same aspect. They lived a long time, and they got stooped by osteoarthritis. And they got rickets, their diets were bad, they got rickets and kind of bow legs. But they were bigger and stronger, more muscular, uh, could run farther because they had an occipital bun. And recent uh, tests on, on treadmills have shown that if you have weight on the back of your head, you can run farther without getting tired. 
So they were more physically fit than we are today, and yet they died out for some reason. So the, what is the latest, the current scientific explanation for Neanderthals? Well, obviously, Neanderthal man was an evolutionary dead end. But uh, from my perspective, Neanderthals were probably uh, an um, ethnic variation. What about DNA of Neanderthals? In 1997, uh, Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA was successfully recovered and sequenced by a scientist, Savanta uh, Pablo and his team. And he recovered DNA from three different specimens. His conclusion was that there was an evolutionary divergence from modern humans, a common ancestor, half a million years ago, thereabouts. So what did he base this on? Uh, maximum differences between humans and human. He based it on differences between genetic differences, the number, absolute number of genetic differences. So let's look at the range here a little bit. The average human difference, on average, taking all of us in this room, is about eight differences for the same area of se that he sequenced. So, that, but there's a there's the range is interesting. The range between uh, the maximum range between me and somebody who has the maximum range between somebody in this room would likely be up to 35 differences between 1 and 35. I may be 1 from you and 35 from you. So there's a range. Um, the average human Neanderthal difference is 25, so the average is certainly greater, but the human Neanderthal range is between 20 and 34. So that's an overlap. There's an overlap between humans and Neanderthals. In other words, someone might be 35 differences from the guy, you might be 35 differences from him, you know, and uh, only 20 differences from a Neanderthal. So who's the Neanderthal, right? And there's also an interesting thing, human-chimp relationships might be closer than chimp-chimp relationships. In other words, you might go up to a chimp in the woods and he might be only 46 differences from that chimp, while a chimp swinging next to him in, in the same tree might be 81 differences from the chimp. So what does that really tell you as far as relationships go? Using Pablo's logic, obviously, one might rightly call his next-door neighbor a Neanderthal. I know some people do that anyway, but now you have evidence. <laughs> further confusion from Pablo's article. Neanderthal DNA was actually further away from chimp DNA on average than modern humans. So are we the missing link or Neanderthal? You know, they're less chimp-like in their DNA than we are, if you want to go by absolute differences. Here's another, it's also politically incorrect. Depending on which genetic sequence you use, you can get chimps and Neanderthals clustered together, or you can get certain populations of Africans alive today and chimps pop clustered together, depending on which sequence you use. And so this does not fly. You know, this is, I mean, everybody agrees that all humans living today are extremely closely related. We're all brothers. Gen even genetically, even mainstream science agrees that. So it's very subjective. Depending on what uh, uh, type of DNA you pick, you can make any outcome you want with any group of humans. What about the whole molecular clock idea? Uh, the molecular clock is that mutations happen at a certain rate, predictably. And if you know how many mutations there are, you can predict how old the common ancestor between two different individuals how long ago they existed. And it used to be thought that mitochondrial Eve, the mother of all humans, lived about 100,000 to 200,000 years ago in sub-Saharan Africa. Then this guy came along. That was all based on human-chimp comparisons, uh, the differences genetically between humans and chimps. Then this guy Parsons came along and he decided, 
I'm going to compare actual human ancestral families that I know the DNA of, I know exactly when they lived, and I'm going to figure out the mutation rate that way. And based on actual human family comparisons that are known historically, the mutation rate was 20 times faster. And so the, he, Parsons published this. He says that actually the mitochondrial Eve only lived 6,000 years ago, which is very interesting from our perspective. And more papers since then. A 2007 study, comparisons suggest large differences. The mutation rate estimates from pedigrees of humans is a hundredfold, not just 20-fold, higher than the substitution rate from the primate mitochondrial DNA control re region. In other words, if you compare yourself to chimps and you assume that the mutation rate is based on that comparison versus pedigrees, the pedigree mutation rate is 20 or 100 times higher based on this study. We weight a more rigorous type of assessment with some nervousness, of course, given that we suspect they might reveal that many past studies place too much confidence in simple molecular clock analysis and that their conclusions should thus be revisited. Uh, I mean, that's a nice way of saying all these previous studies are bogus. Mathematical model. This just came out uh, in 2004. A, math a mathematical model of of evolutionary relationships between modern humans. All modern humans, including aborigines who are isolated a long period of time on Australia. These analyses suggest that the genealogies of all living humans overlap in remarkable ways in, in the recent past. In particular, the most recent common ancestor of all present-day humans lived just a few thousand years ago. In other words, between three and 4,000 BC in their, in their paper. In these models, moreover, in these models. Moreover, all individuals living more than a, just a few thousand years earlier than the most recent common ancestor, each present-day human has exactly the same set of genealogical ancestors. That was published in Nature in 2004. I mean, whose model does this seem to match? What Avenus have been saying all along, or what uh, mainstream science has been revising all along? Here's another example of wishful thinking. This cave is called Fonte Chevade. It's in France. And it was excavated by um, this uh, scientist woman in 1937, Germain um, Henry Martin. She was very well respected in her day as an anthropologist. Um, this cave was in southwestern France. And uh, she continued her excavation work until 1954, removing over 900 cubic meters of sediment. She's a hardworking woman. She discovered in this cave the first Frenchmen that she said were older than Neanderthals. And so here are the layers in the cave. She started at the top and moved her on her way down. And as she moved down, she uh, unearthed evidence of how these first Frenchmen lived. Uh, she found evidence of uh, butchering and fire building and uh, living habitats and what they ate and blah, blah, blah. And she made this big elaborate story and everybody went along with this. This was mainstream science for a long period of time. See, she found the skull fragments and here, here's the fragment where it matches on this skull. And it is, it's a human skull fragment, sure enough. Um, I already talked about how she, the evidence for how they lived. Anyway, a big long story until 1970s when Shannon uh, McPher McFerrin and uh, Daryl Dibble decided to do some reinvestigation. What they did is they, they got laser mapping uh, equipment. They went around to the edge of the cave where there were still uh, layers left and they mapped all these little bony fragments and little pieces of wood and stone and whatnot 
uh, by laser GPS analysis. So they could tell the three-dimensional orientation in space. And what, they, what their analysis turned out is that these things were all oriented either perpendicular or parallel to the cave walls. In other words, they were flood deposits. They were not uh, there deposited by the first Frenchman. Even these fragments of human skulls and whatever were deposited in a flood. And uh, so then they went and looked for the source of the water, how the water could have gotten into this cave, and they found this little opening in the back of the cave where the water had been draining in for a long period of time and washing all these sediments into this cave. So it completely messed up the whole story of the first Frenchman. So this was presented on um, Neanderthals on Trial in a PBS documentary in 2002 that I was watching, and I was just fascinated about the argument of, of the psychology of why this happened. What made it look real to the archaeologist was an overwhelming desire to see the past in a certain way. The urge to distance ourselves from Neanderthals or to pull them closer to us is a surprisingly powerful force. Archaeologist Jean Philip uh, Rigaud, I don't even know how to say Rigaud, and uh, Jan Simic are well aware of the problem. Jan Simic added, I think we are all as guilty of it today, of that kind of preconceived approach to our data as anybody has been in the history of archaeology or anthropology. It's almost inevitable that our own views of the world will be brought to bear. In other words, you have to worry about bias. We all do. So it appears that Fontaine-Chevade was an elaborate illusion, not a human habitation site at all. What made it look real to archaeologists was an overwhelming desire to see the past in a certain way. Scientists are just as prone to it as the rest of us. Um, also interesting comments from Mark Davis, who investigated a story on Neanderthals for Nova uh, not too long ago. Uh, he's not an anthropologist. He's just, uh, uh, he goes around and interviews people for, for Nova. He said, I spoke with many Neanderthal experts in the course of making this film. And I found them all to be intelligent, friendly, well-educated people, dedicated to the highest principles of scientific inquiry, I also got the impression that each one thought the last one I talked to was an idiot, if not an actual Neanderthal. <laughs> the more people I spoke with, the more confusing it got. Listening to archaeologists and anthropologists talk about their work and their colleagues' work, I heard the same frustrations voiced again and again. People are driven by their preconceptions. They see what they want to see. They find what they are looking for. So you have to, we have to worry about that too. Why are we here? Are we here just because we want to be here? This is, we want God to be a certain way? Or are we here because this is what's most reasonable, most rational in our religion? He goes on, I learned that what people see in the Neanderthals often has as much to do with philosophy as it has to do with science. What does it mean to be human? Some definitions are broad and inclusive, others are narrow and exclusive. Scholars have been known to attack one another's views on Neanderthals as racist or politically correct. What I found most interesting in all of this is that every scientist I talked to encouraged me to explore the issue of self-delusion, and no one claimed to be immune, except when you're talking to a creationist. <laughs> and creationists are idiots, and they're immune. They are all aware that the history of the field is littered with brilliant scholars who completely missed the boat because of the power of their preconceptions. <laughs> Talk about preconceptions. Flipper Pithecus, they found this little piece of bone, and they said it was a uh, bone of a human until this guy, Tim White, came along from uh, California for Berkeley. And he says, a five million year old piece of bone that was thought to be a collarbone of a human-like creature is actually part of a dolphin rib. The problem with a lot of anthropologists is that they want so much to find a hominid that any scrap of bone becomes a hominid bone. 
So you go along, man, I just made a great discovery. Of course, people who are driven by f money, I mean, if you find a hominid, you get funding for this research, right? And so you're driven not by pure motives. I mean, anthropology, there's all kinds of fakes coming out of, of the Holy Land. Uh, tons and tons of famous fakes exposed recently because, uh, you know, if you get paid $600,000 for finding a, a fragment of, of uh, a little uh, a pottery shard from the temple in Jerusalem, you're going to find a little fragment of pottery shard from the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, shoot, if you make, you know, 100 bucks a year, that's what you're going to find. Recently in the news, uh, I don't know if you guys have been heard about this, but it's been pretty prominent in the news. March 2008, The Hobbit was found, a three-foot-tall uh, creature with a brain about the size of a grapefruit. Uh, the bones were discovered in a cave in Indonesian island in 2003. It is claimed to be a new species of human due to unique features of the skull and chimpanzee-like wrist bones compared to modern humans. The excavation work was uh, partially funded by National Geographic. And uh, there was a film about it I saw uh, on March 2008, not too long ago. Days later, uh, in, uh, like a couple days later, uh, Lee Berger published his view of these bones, uh, combined with his find of 26 other individuals of similar size in caves of Micronesia, and his conclusion that the islands were overrun by diminutive humans as recently as 1,400 years ago, but despite their size, these people clearly belong to our species. In other words, they were pygmies, modern pygmies. As far as the chimpanzee-like wrist bones, modern humans can have a mutated gene called a PCNT gene that produces three to four foot stature, proportional body size with normal or near normal intelligence, and uh, bony wrist abnormalities, similar to these. So it all fits together. The smallest, normally intelligent, proportional human was uh, just uh, about just over two feet tall, uh, and I have pictures of her on my website. Uh, but you can have very tiny brains, tiny heads, and still be essentially normal in intelligence. Uh, the brain size actually doesn't matter as much as the structure of the brain itself. Um, the question that I and my colleagues have. Uh, this is the same uh, Robert Eckert of Pennsylvania State University. He writes, the question that I and my colleagues have asked ourselves is how could anyone possibly believe this, that the hobbits are a new species of hominid and are not simply a modern ethnic human variation? There was such a will to believe in the story that critical faculties were suspended on the part of many people. People want to believe still. This is a faith-based endeavor. Don't kid yourself that scientists are cold, calculating, Spock-like creatures. They're not. They're just as passionate as the rest of us. Current ideas on human evolution. As of August 2007, Mav Leakey, again, Leakey comes up uh, with Fred Manthe uh, and others, found Homo erectus, another homo, you know, pretty much human, Homo erectus, close to Homo sapiens, found with Homo habilis, found together with Homo habilis. The unli it's unlikely that Homo erectus evolved from Homo habilis now because they're found together. In other words, who killed, who butchered, who butchered all those creatures with all those little uh, tools all around? And it was humans, and they butch they ate the Homo habilis. Hello. Overall, what what it paints for human evolution is a chaotic kind of looking evolutionary tree, rather than a heroic march that you see within the cartoons of early ancestors evolving, some intermediate, and then eventually into us. So this all jumbled up. All these skeletons, they all lived at the same time. 
essentially. So this is a conclusion, this is funny, I think. Co-author Susan Anthon of the New York University worried that anti-evolutionists like me would use this information to show the flaws in the overall theory of evolution. Good call. <laughs> you know, she writes, this is not a questioning the idea at all that evolution happened. It is refining some of the specific points, Anton said. This is a great example of what science does and what religion doesn't do. It is a continuous self-testing process. Now, if she's right on that, if religion doesn't reevaluate itself and test itself and, and subject itself to potential falsification, then to me it's not worth very much. If that's really what your religion is based on, it's not worth very much. It could be, you know, little green men live on Mars type religion. Uh, but if your religion is based on solid, concrete, uh, fundamental, uh, reasonable basis and that I think is scientific, then I think religion can be worth quite a bit. Key human-ape differences. Um, it's been recently discovered that, anybody here of junk DNA? Everybody, I mean, you never heard of junk DNA? Junk DNA is stuff that's not genes. We have genes in our body, but genes only comprise between one and 2% of our total genetic makeup. The rest of it was thought for 50 years to be junk or evolutionary remnants of a bygone era that we don't use anymore, that just hang around because we haven't got rid of it yet. But it doesn't do anything. However, within the last 10 years or so, it's turned out that not only is this DNA not junk, of course it doesn't code for proteins, but it actually is functional. And not only is it functional, but it is the primary functional information system of the whole genome of all creatures. The junk DNA actually uh, tells the proteins uh, where to go, how to build themselves, how to arrange themselves. It is like the blueprint for the body. The genes themselves are actually quite basic. They're like bricks and mortar, like very rudimentary uh, coded structures. They're not informationally as complex as the junk DNA, which tells the bricks how to be laid. In other words, changes different creatures, um, like we, us and rats, humans and rats, are only about 500 genes difference out of about 30,000 genes. So what makes us look like humans versus rats? It's not really our genes. The difference between us and rats is our junk DNA. Our junk DNA is very different between uh, humans and rats. And even between humans and chimps, junk DNA is turning out to be quite different. Uh, here's a quote from uh, a Scientific American in 2003. Indeed, what was damned as junk DNA because it was not understood, may in fact turn out to be the very basis of human complexity, Maddox suggests. Pseudogenes, riboswitches, and all the rest, there is good reason to suspect that it is true. Active RNA, it is now coming out, helps to control large-scale structure of the chromosome and some crucial, crucial chemical modifications to them, an entirely different epigenetic layer of information in the genome. And this is just now coming to light. And creationists have been predicting this for decades. I have it on my own website for the past uh, 10 years. The different microRNA repertoire, and that's junk DNA as well, uh, or the product of non-coding DNA, as well as differences in expression level con of conserved microRNAs may contribute to gene expression differences observed in human and chimpanzee brain development. For example, microRNA recently have been implicated in synaptic development and in the memory formation. 
As the species-specific microRNAs described here are expressed in the brain, species-specific mean they're only, only found in one or the other. They're specific to humans or specific to chimps. They're not found in both. Uh, which is the most complex tissue in the human body with an estimated 10,000 different cell types, these microRNAs could have a role in establishing or maintaining cellular diversity and could thereby contribute to the differences in human and chimpanzee brain function. And that's just one organ system. So the real complexity is not in the genes. We're, when, it, when you hear the quote that we're 1.5% the same as apes, that's only based on genes. It's not based on non-coding DNA. Here's a little video. Uh, people often say, well, you know, uh, donkeys and horses. I've actually got into a debate recently where people said donkeys and horses are less related than humans and chimps. And I was like, wait a minute. Donkeys and horses can get together and make mules, right? Uh, humans and chimps, can humans and chimps get together and make humanzies? <laughs> you know? Well, that has been debated. And for a long time, people thought the answer to that question was yes. And of course, because for ethical reasons, it wasn't actually experiments have been done uh, in different places, but they're not generally reported. But they have been done. Um, with uh, unsuccessfully, as far as any sort of confirmation is concerned. But then came along this uh, creature called that they named Oliver. And Oliver, you can see, he stands upright. He, he, he liked to walk around like this. He didn't walk around on his knuckles at all. He liked to walk around like this. And his head was a little smaller, and his ears were up higher and pointed. And so people in the mainstream science thought he was perhaps a mix between humans and chimps. Here's a little video clip. While most entered in a crouched over position, one chimpanzee walked out of his transport cage completely upright. Hi, Ollie. His name was Oliver. Wow, Ollie, you stand up. Look at you. Oliver, you gotta climb up to chase her. Come on, Oliver, climb. Gotta climb, Oliver. There you go. Pretty convincing, huh? I mean, he walks around. Um, he looks. He could. He, if anything's a missing link, I mean, as far as here, we have a live one. He actually walks upright, and uh, you know, if that's the definition of a missing link, you got one right here. So they did. At first, they did DNA studies in Japan, and uh, they had 30 cells, and 28 of them looked like exactly like the same number of chromosomes as chimps. But two of the cells. Uh, uh, chimps have, uh, humans have 46 and chimps have 48 chromosomes. Two of the cells had 47 in Japan. And so they said, aha, he's, he may be a missing link. He's got right in between 47 and 48. He's, humans have 46, he's got 47, and chimps have 48. So he's obviously a combination. Then, well, that, that study wasn't really confirmed until about 10 years later when they redid the analysis and they did it more specifically. They actually sequenced the genome, not just uh, chromosome comparison. And he turns out to be a, uh, a relatively rare chimp from the Congo, but still a chimp, a Congo-based chimp. So he's not a missing link at all, even though he was believed to be. And so, look, if you can't tell a missing link when you have a live creature based just on morphology, if you can't tell a live one from uh, uh, a regular chimp, how on earth can you find a tiny little fragment of bone or a, a tooth and decide that's a missing link because it rocked upright? It just, 
just doesn't add up. That, that's not scientific in my book. So here's a conclusion. Dr. David Philbin, I think this is one of the most honest moments in literature I've been able to find. He's an anthropologist from Harvard. He writes, my reservations concerning not so much this book, he was writing a book review, but the whole subject of method and methodology of paleoanthropology. But introductory books or book reviews are hardly the place to argue that perhaps generations of students of human evolution, including myself, have been flailing about in the dark, that our data base is too sparse, too slippery for it to be able to mold our theories. Rather, the theories are more statements about us and ideology than about the past. Paleoanthropology reveals more about how humans view themselves than it does about humans than about how humans came about. But that is heresy. And that's it for this lecture. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.